Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. Normally this is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, I am flying solo today. This week I share my thoughts on the Delta Green game I'm playing in. Even while playing, I cannot shut my GM brain off. There are multiple good things I learned while participating in the game which I will share. I also do a quick overview of a new purchase I made, Kobold's Guide to Monsters. I also discuss my next project, one that I'm working with a group of people on, and I give my thoughts on creature write-ups, and that dovetails into the use of a copy editor, as well as making use of software such as ProWritingAid. But enough of that, it is time to get rambling. Hello everyone, flying solo today due to scheduling issues and I figured, well, it's better put out a podcast uh, with myself rather than just not putting out a podcast at all, so here we are. Uh, this podcast is probably not going to be heavily edited and as you'll see, I'm not quite as comfortable talking to myself as I am with other people, so anyway, bear with me and we'll see how this goes. So anyhow, things that are going on this week, well actually it was last week, but uh, we've been playing Delta Green uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a it's a um, it's a Cthulhu style adventure uh, set in more modern times, and the idea is it ties in government conspiracy. So what you have is in the past in this alternate history where uh, the government's got involved. They found out about uh, the Nazis, started finding out about the the Cthulhu mythos, and started kind of doing their things and. And so all the governments have gotten involved and they are all doing their own thing, trying to, I guess, in various ways, harness, understand. Uh, the other thing that this ties in, since it's set in more modern times, is that, um, that a lot of the things that we would read in the Inquirer, National Inquirer, or uh, a lot of those um, conspiracy theories uh, that tend to go about are true. Um, but there's a truth behind those things. So the game starting out has the understanding is the mythos is real. Uh, the mythos is behind various things. And then you have two government factions that are actually working against each other. So one is Majestic, uh, who is wanting to um, utilize alien technology, Cthulhu technology, um, to... For their, own, I mean, just for their own purposes, but they're doing whatever it takes in order to acquire and use um, new technologies for the advancement of, of the government. Then you have another group that that the characters are part of. It's called Delta Green, and a little more subversive, and they are trying to, I guess, from what we tell so far, keep that from happening. So you have three factions in the game. You have the, the, the Delta Green, you have the Majestic, and then you also have the Alien slash Cthulhu uh, mythos. So uh, it all works pretty well. I was kind of, uh, you know, originally I thought maybe we we're going to use the, uh, the gumshoe version, um, but instead uh, the GM picked the basic role-playing, the uh, BRP engine. It's an earlier version that, um, that they used for this game, and I was a little bit apprehensive. Uh, I mean, the basic role playing is is very functional. It's just it just seems like such a complexity in minor things. Um, 
like for instance, uh, the vast number of skills. Also, I think if I recall correctly, like getting criticals is based on a percentage of your total chance to hit. And it, it just those kind of fiddly bits I found kind of annoying. Uh, but actually, the system is, uh, they cleaned it up, simplified it, streamlined it, and um, and they also kind of had a both a critical hit and a critical fail, which is simple, is simple to calculate. So uh, it is a percentage-based system. So if you've got a 70% chance to hit, um, or any percentage chance to hit, uh, any number you roll below it is successful, or equal to or below, and if you roll double digits, so if you get a, let's say your success is 70% or less, so if you roll an 11, 22, 33, etc., that's a critical success. Uh, conversely, if you roll higher than your chance of success and it's uh, both digits, the 10s the place and the 1s place is both uh, the same number, uh, like an 88 or 99, in that case, it's a critical fail. So it's really... Um, yeah, so it takes it doesn't take any calculation really. So it's it's really it's it's really nice. Um, also, the sanity mechanic or maybe insanity mechanic, um, I like. I we played in Gumshoe using doing the Trail of Cthulhu. The GM realized afterwards that he really wasn't quite applying the uh, insanity mechanic as well or uh, appropriately, and it probably should have been harder. So. Going to this system, it's it's um, it can get pretty serious pretty quick, and that's kind of why I appreciate it because I mean, you know, that's kind of what I was hoping for is is bad things happening to characters, but uh, but unfortunately for our GM, uh, we have made some very uh, fortunate decisions, and um, and even when we made bad choices, our bad dice rolls actually <laughs> saved us. So anyhow. Uh, Anyway, it's a good system, uh, and the one thing, or actually two notable things uh, that I picked up from this game, uh, we're running what's called Black Sights, and he set it in the, we're right now in the late 70s, so, you know, through, we're going through three, we went through Three Mile Island, for those of you old enough to remember that, so uh, we found the, the hidden, you know, the hidden thing behind that, uh, and we've um, been through a few more, and... Um, Last the last adventure we were in Afghanistan, it, it's kind of funny because you know they gave ways of using Afghanistan both in various time periods, and we were basically there to find a um, an officer who was training rebels. Um, so it was a, something that was you know at that time we were uh, there was a cold war with Russia, but it could have been easily adapted to even today where you could just say you know we're withdrawing and we're, and we're still training people so so what i found was interesting is uh the use of npcs in the narrative uh, we were in a situation where we needed to travel to a particular location it was very dangerous uh, we were in vehicles and we were going to get ambushed and that was a given by ambushed i mean we're driving along um a ravine and we get with some RPGs, which flips the vehicle, at least one vehicle. Um, and we take on heavy fire and it was pretty, it was pretty brutal. So in this game, the characters are pretty squishy and, uh, which is, as should be. So the question is, you know, as a GM, you, you think about this, say you want to present a formidable challenge 
and you want to create an atmosphere, but characters are very fragile, how do you handle that? And the way they handled that is by providing extra soldiers. And so they, those extra soldiers became the, the main targets of the attacks, of the ambush, of the, of the small arms fire. Now, because of that, the story could go forward. Because, I mean, if it was just the player characters, uh, we'd all be dead. Or not we, but the characters would all be dead. So by doing that, you could portray a situation that is more dangerous than the players can handle, provide a means of rather than just... Uh, softening the opponents, you could actually create extra um, meat shields, we'll say, in order to still provide that feeling. So it really felt like, you know, we were in a bad, tight spot. In fact, we did come out of it okay, but only, uh, well, I should say only, but mainly because the the opponents uh, did a critical failure on one of their RPG attacks and actually blew themselves up. So uh, that that helped. So, but likewise, you could do that with, with even like a fantasy setting. Um, just provide, um, with the old school games, it was pretty standard with old school D&D. Um, one standard way of playing it was to have hirelings and for players to go out and seek out hirelings. And they kind of were never intended by uh, design to be, um, Directly, just straight meat shields. You know, they had a, you know, as a GM, I think the requirement was, or at least the expectation was, that forcing players to to play them appropriately. But what it did is, with especially low level characters, allowed them to actually extend out their the length of time they could play to make the the point where they could actually start um, advancing. So it's not really a new concept, but I think it's one that kind of gets forgotten or not really thought about uh, in applying to modern design. And that, that was a, I guess it was kind of a little bit of eye-opening or revelatory that, uh, you know, if, if you want to make a, a very challenging situation, just include a lot of people and have them be the first ones, you know, to die. So, you know, and you could use that not only for, like, combat, but you could also just even use it as a means to, uh, gauge how serious the situation is. So, you know, maybe the air is running out or whatever it may be, and, and people slowly start dying, um, and then with the, the characters being left. So uh, the other thing is um, what I also found to be um, noteworthy, at least for myself, this is not a shock to other people, is that there really wasn't um, a lot of locations, and there really wasn't a lot of of uh, information at each site um, for the last one we were on, um, but you know when I'm you know as a, you know as a, if I'm trying to create an adventure for players, you know I try and think of all these different things to add and and really um, it doesn't have to be from the player side uh, that gives me experience uh, the ability to experience from the player's vantage point. I was able to understand you know I. I re- it, it was a bit of a railroad, and that's fine. And um, But it really was... Uh, the experience was very satisfactory, as far as I'm concerned. It did not detract from the experience, the fact that that we... Uh, you know, there's only a little bit of information at, at each place, and then we went to the final uh, location. 
And at that final location, it really was at that point the decision that we we made uh, what was what was important, and because that's what either made us or break make us or break us. So uh, the other thing is the um, thing I also appreciate about the uh, Delta Green is that there are there are basically the, you know, these two governmental factions, and they both operate within the government and against each other, but they cannot act openly against each other. And also, you can be doing missions uh, that could, um, it's going to help or hinder one or the other. So, in, in fact, what you do may cause the other faction, the, we'll even say the opposing faction, to even be forced to do things that are, um, I would say positive. So, like for instance, there was one situation where the outcome was, and we at this time we did not know we were being hired by Majestic. We just knew we had some sort of benefactor. Um, that we were um, at the end, the government paid us off. They they gave us twenty five thousand dollars just to to, to to plead ignorance. Well, come to find out uh, afterwards that that was from. Um, uh, that was from Majestic. They paid us off to not talk. So it, it's kind of interesting is that the factions don't necessarily always act directly as far as trying to kill the characters, but the uh, outcome um, can have, well, you can have various outcomes, and those various outcomes can all be interesting. And also it kind of affects the, you know, the, um, the various factions themselves. So... Anyway, that was what I took away from Delta Green. Uh, pretty good, pretty good system. Um, I really, um, I recommend it. So last week I picked up Cobalt's uh, Guide to Monsters. It's a fairly short book, um, filled with essays. I mean, from and from a bunch of uh, luminaries such as Wolfgang Bauer and Monty Cook, Steve Winter, and such. Um, Picking this up, I mean, I really wasn't expecting any sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, any sort of, like, revelatory new concepts, but was looking for something just to, for myself, to kind of maybe help jog, help stimulate, help think about write-ups as I'm getting more and more into writing, and uh, I would say this is, this is actually a very good resource. Um, it's pretty solid uh i think you know obviously depending on who you are and where you're at and uh in your in your writing um maybe some will be more helpful than others i think some will be a little bit better written than others but i would say overall none of the essays were uh stinkers i think they all are in general are, are just really good um in providing advice um you know, for me, I think it's it was it was it's definitely worth it to to go through. It's just one of those things that I think it's easy when you're in the throes of writing a thing to kind of lose maybe sight of some some of the bigger things. So anyway, uh, it's a really good it's a really good resource, and I, I recommend. It. I picked it up, and it's like I think twenty two dollars, twenty three dollars. Um, you. Honestly, if you can, just pick up an electronic copy. You can get it much cheaper. 
there's not like there's a lot of art to it, but it is a nice sized, um, it's a nice sized book, but it's not thick. It's, um, I, for whatever reason, I can't find it now. So otherwise I would uh, give you some chapter headings and such. But, but anyway, um, I recommend uh, checking that out if you're, if you're interested in, uh, in doing better with monster write-ups or creature write-ups. Uh, for me, it's less cr monsters and more creatures, but, uh, you know, the idea is, is the same, you know types of challenges, how they act, you know, not necessarily lining everything up to being at, um, encounters for combat, you know, ecology, um, just noteworthy things like that. So if you get a chance to, uh, you're interested, just pick that up. The third thing I want to talk about is the newest zine project. Um, I'm calling it a zine, I'm calling it Megazine. Uh, there is a project I'm working on is called Into the Madlands. It's a clever project. We've got some artists, an additional writer. Um, so Buck Crutchfield, Jose Gonzalez, Mark Finn. We've all kind of uh, pulled together and created this. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic supplement. Uh, the intent is to be fairly universal in the in its application. Um, it's about 75% laid out. We guys still have some art trickling in. Got a little bit more writing, but but the majority of the writing has already gone through copy editing, and uh, it's just a matter of tweaking and finishing the stuff the stuff up. But so there are some things in here that I can see. Well, I say I can see that, but there's some things that I thought were important that often I think is missing in bestiaries. In fact, looking at bestiaries in general, uh, I find that while they tend to have a lot of um, maybe cool mechanics, may have cool creatures and, 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 and write-ups, they often seem to be lacking in how to maybe utilize the creature maybe kind of how it acts, maybe even um, any way to even use it in non-combat ways. So, I mean, the assumption is always you're going to fight it. And that's that's kind of, I mean, for certain types of games, it's, I mean, that's, I, that's, if that's all you want, that's fine. If you're going to a dungeon and everything is gonna, everything's going to be in it or – there's going to be a room, and each room's going to have a creature, and each creature you're going to fight, and each creature's going to provide XP, and you move on, and that's an experience you want. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're saying, you know what, it's just there could be things that are more interesting than combat, or, you know, what sort of life does this thing sort of live besides just existing to, to fight uh, players? That's, you know, that's kind of the issue. And it's kind of, to me, one of the the... the, the aggravating things like you can take a creature that is um let's say like a demon or devil and all it's really given is is for the most part a description and combat stats but to me the more interesting thing is how they're gonna mess with characters you know what sort of motivations do they have and what ways can you use them in ways that aren't just directly combative and I find that, in general, that most of the, um, I'll say even the later supplements, not so, 
so much some of the earlier stuff, but it just seems like there isn't much thought put into utilizing them in any way but for combat. Now, earlier systems would have like reaction tables. And so you come across a creature and you'd roll to see how it'd react uh, for random encounters. And I think if you had a little bit more understanding of the motivations and directions of a of a of a uh, of a creature or a humanoid, um, I think that would also better serve to handle random encounters. And also, if you're kind of wanting to see ways that you can use creatures besides just in combat, so. Anyhow, I, I tried expanding this out a little bit uh, for the um, – I tried expanding this out for um, encounters, but especially for the, for the bestiary. And so what I provided, which I thought would be interesting because we're talking about a post-apocalyptic setting – and so some of these things may be more appropriate in games where there is a scarcity of resources. Uh, so one of the things I've added to the stat block, and I'm using just kind of a generic, um, I say generic, a general um, OSR style stat block. It's all, this is all written up as, as far as being D20. Um, I may go back and do some, some different things with it. But one of the, the things I added was edible. Is the creature edible? <laughs> so, you know, on one hand, it's like, this could be very important. You know, if you are, you know, most D&D campaigns, everybody's so either loaded with rations or, especially me as a GM, if the game isn't about scarcity of food, I really don't care. Generally, as a GM, I'm not really concerned about scarcity of resources, arrows, whatever. Um, mainly because it seems like if if the story isn't about that, it's really irrelevant. I really, you know, if you're watching or reading Lord of the Rings, there's no there's no concern about running out of arrows. There's no concern about you know maybe running out of food, um, but there is an issue of time. And that is the, the pressure. So for games that, that focus in on scarcity of resources where you can only carry so much food and that food is necessary for like characters to um, reinvigorate themselves, uh, then that becomes something that's important. So I added an edibility to this, uh, to the stat. So is it edible? Yes or no. And I also add Q for questionable because you know what? If you're desperate enough, maybe you'll you'll stick that in your mouth, but uh, but it would only be under the most extreme circumstances. So, I think in you know utilizing these, you know, this is written for post-apocalyptic game, but it's any of these creatures are um, they're portable to an OSR game, so it's not an issue. So, um, but in a lot of ways, I think even just adding that edibility trait is uh, is just fun. It's just fun, you know. It's like you know, I think, you know, even for D&D, to even add that would be like, okay, you, 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 you did this thing, you killed a creature that was a threat, um, and, uh, you know, maybe cut some steaks off of it and have, <laughs> and then cook it over the campfire. I don't know. Uh, but there's opportunities there. The other thing I added was utility. So it's pretty clear that you know, maybe primitive is not the right word anymore, but but basically 
when the with societies that have very low technology, uh, they utilize animal parts. So, you know, there's there's utility of the meat, obviously for food, but but also it's like um, bones and horns and such were used uh, by various groups over many continents. All humanity has, has basically done this uh, early on. Is is used for tools. So, um, and generally because there's a lack of resources, uh, having those resources like, like, like say like antlers or tusks or, or hide, you know, those are necessary for, for building materials for protection, whatever. So anyway, for, for the creatures, I added a utility. So some creatures actually uh, have carapaces that can serve for utility, or perhaps maybe there's something about it that's actually um, valuable for other reasons, maybe the, the plumage or, or whatever. So that's another thing that added to the bestiary that uh, maybe not necessarily the most unique thing, but, but something I think that can add more fun and also can provide prompts for a, uh, you know, for the characters. Like for instance, um, there are some that are, there's one of the creatures I wrote that's, that's, you know, very venomous, but you can also make an, um, uh, you can make an antivenom with their venom. So at that point, then it could be a plot hook where it's like, you know what, somebody's got hit by a neurotoxin, uh, they can make an antidote, but you got to go harvest it from, from this creature. And so by providing some sort of utility, um, it kind of makes, at least in my mind, at least, uh, the, the creatures seem more, um, less like monsters and more like normal, um, creatures that would, that societies would, would, would utilize when they could. Um, cause I think it's, it, it seems like, at least with this game, my, what my attempt was for the best area is to. Uh, what I ended up doing was mashing up two different creatures. So I randomly rolled, you know, two creatures and and then tried to figure out what that combination did. Uh, much like the impossible creatures from a uh, game from as of Microsoft from years ago, uh, where you could combine, you know, a a, a porpoise and a bombardier beetle or a, a termite and an elephant. Um, so. The idea is to kind of give it a more naturalistic. I mean, obviously, that some of the stuff is just a little too fantastical, but it's not way out there. And by combining two creatures, um, you know, if we look back at earlier time periods uh, in history, prehistoric times, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different mammals that were just bizarre. So it's really not out of place to have, you know, very large mammals doing weird stuff or very large insects doing stuff. And, but I think monsters in general are presented in the, in most D&D situations as unnatural where these creatures I'm trying to present as being more natural and, um, and how the characters interact with them in that way. Um, also the other thing I'm going to talk about is, um, so copy editing, I recommend that if, uh, probably for everybody, but I can't speak for accomplished writers, but from the podcast I listen to in my own personal experiences, I, it is the importance of a copy editor. And I know for myself, um, my writing, uh, I need it. I, I'm, you know, I think there are some things I'm okay at 
some things I'm not good at. And so at least the, you know, having a person go through and having that viewpoint um, and be able to make those corrections, especially technical ones, is important. I think the other aspect that's important is the view of clarity from a third per from another person. So we're immersed in our work. It's hard to understand where things aren't clear. And so uh, having a copy editor at least goes through and says, Hey, you know, uh, this isn't very clear. You need to you can, maybe we can clean up this way or that way. Or as, um, as Jessica says, uh, let's, let's smooth this out. So, um, but th that's an important tool. The other thing I'll say is I, I'll keep, um, recommending is, is pro writing aid, or, you know, you could also use Grammarly as well. But, um, for those of us that, um, I mean, it's, it's a valuable tool for me. So it, it goes through, through grammar issues, spelling issues, style issues, but you know, those are all like extremely ha handy for me because every correction I make, I will make at least two types of mistakes, but it also will, uh, look at things like um, um, you can look at duplication of words so which is very nice because it's very easy to keep using the same word over and over again throughout a paragraph or throughout a section and sometimes especially with English is that repetition of a word is just there's a point where it becomes annoying so it picks those things up it also does a readability and uh transitions which I, I sometimes use sometimes don't the main thing I use is the is the uh, grammar slash uh, spelling also the all repeats repeated words and uh, transition I use sometimes a lot of times it keeps things from being so abrupt and it allows a little more smoother flow of thought is what that's looking for and then readability so uh, well worth my money um, it definitely that's a tool that you can you can use uh, that will improve your writing. Well, I shouldn't say improve your writing. It's improved my writing. And uh, and it's also, you know, when you have somebody like um, somebody doing a copy edit or whatever type of edit you're doing, it's best to get the manuscript as close as you can get to being right before you hand it to them. Uh, it's just very tempting for us just to write. And, uh, and just once we're done, we just want to be done with it and just hand over to somebody else. But, you know, it's, it's really not their job to uh, fix everything. It's, it's their job to make your writing better. So it's, it's, it's a good discipline to actually work hard to provide a, the best you can edit yourself to the copy editor um, beforehand. And uh, believe you me, <laughs> even with all the work I do, there's still uh, things that are found. So it's not like uh, they're not earning their money if you if you fix everything because you're not fixing everything. And um, the other thing I'll say, uh, I guess in closing, there's uh, I came across I haven't tried it out yet. Um, it's called Pseudo Writer S U D O W R I T E R. Go ahead and Google that. What it is, is a AI for writing. And so it you put in your text and it will provide, um, it can it'll output stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's artificial intelligence. So it's an interface to existing artificial intelligence. And uh, this is a podcast uh, describing it. 
it's not something that you would use to like say write your RPG supplement or or whatever, but you could like take text from you know uh, they didn't exp- they did not explain it this way, but kind of me playing around with another artificial intelligence program. You could like say take a text that maybe you take some Poe or something else and copy and paste it to see like what kind of rhythm, what kind of things does it put out. Now, for myself, I you know I seem to fall more flat on what I call uh, providing fluff, and by fluff is my writing can be pretty terse, <clears throat> and and it's and I realize that you know you don't want to have. Um, there needs to be a certain amount of. It, I guess it's kind of like with with like say hamburger. You want a certain you want a certain amount of of lean meat. And you want a certain amount of fat. So if you have too much fat, it's greasy nastiness. If it's too much fat or not enough fat, it's lean. It's just dry. So generally, what happens is you kind of need a, a, the right mixture of fluff and with just straight content. Because if it's just straight content, it just reads like a textbook and and. It's not interesting. And so fluff isn't really a pejorative term. Uh, it's just really something that really adds more flavor. It adds more seasoning to, I guess maybe we'll just use that analogy. It adds, it adds seasoning to, to, the, uh, to the dish that you're making. So um, anyway, the things I'm looking for, if I'm going to do, uh, I'm not sure how much I'm going to utilize this or what the, what they're planning on the subscription rate is to actually use it to maybe help my descriptions. Like maybe, like I want to describe, maybe I'm doing a, we'll just stick with a post-apocalyptic theme. Maybe I want to write a post-apocalyptic adventure, but I want to describe a, a, maybe uh, a dank, dark warehouse, or maybe I want to describe a, um, maybe a forest scene or something like that where you can you can uh, use artificial intelligence to kind of generate um, a, um, you know, maybe not something you're going to directly copy and paste, but but kind of give you a vibe and a feel and a rhythm uh, that you can utilize for um, uh, for the writing. Um, also playing around with, it wasn't Sewer Writer, but another one. I mean, it, it's, I copied part of, an, uh, I guess we'll call it an encounter with an enclave as a description and let it go, and it started generating, <laughs> started generating a plot, and uh, you know, the, the plot was kind of gen- somewhat generic, but yet it also had some interesting specifics. Um, so, you know, that's another idea too, where you could just be writing something, and you could just dump your text into this thing, and then you can tell it to. Uh, to actually start generating stuff and just see where it goes and kind of jog some different ideas because I think it's hard. Sometimes we get stuck in our way of thinking and this is a means of of kind of freeing that up. So it looks like there's a lot of neat stuff out there that's going to be coming our way. And right now it's on the fringe, but pretty soon it's going to be mainstream. I mean, it's going to be there. And there's no reason why, you uh, you know, we can't be good at everything. So it's... This is not something that'll ever uh, supplant the uh, the need for an actual writer. It's not something intended to that you're just going to ever going to copy and paste directly in. But it's definitely some tools are on the horizon for 
just for uh, just helping us um, to, to to be better at our craft. So anyway, it looks like I'm hitting the time space continuum. Uh, you take care and until next time.